Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the book Strange But True, The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and Wife, New Bedford 1893, and we're on the second section. I do want to add here a little warning for those who are sensitive on such subjects or those who are listening with children. This book is ultimately about Captain Crapo taking his wife across the Atlantic in a dory, a fantastic adventure that it's good to hear about. But at the beginning of this book, it does go into the detail of his life as a young teenager involved in the whaling business out in the Pacific, and the descriptions in this chapter are quite graphic. So if you're having a dinner, or if you just don't want to hear about such things, this perhaps is one to miss out. I don't think it'll affect the overall story. Maybe skip forward to the next section, part three. Chapter one continued. The Captain's Story. On arrival at Mocha, we lay off and on as before at Fayal, the captain again going ashore for letters and provisions. When out of sight of the boat, three of the boat's crew deserted. When the captain returned to the boat, he was informed of the fact when he again went ashore and offered a reward for their capture. The boat then returned to the ship when the sailors told us about the men running away. After the captain had informed the officers of the desertion, he sailed a short distance from the island to make the deserters think he was going out to sea. Deserters generally put for the mountains and remain hidden until the ship sails when they come down among the natives. When, about nine o'clock in the evening, signal fires on the shore announced the capture of the deserters. The first mate, with a picked crew, at once started for the shore and soon returned with the runaways. Runaways are generally punished by losing their watch below in the daytime for a period of time fixed by the captain and only an allowance of hardtack and a stated quantity of water to drink during the time. We then squared away for Talcahuna, about three days sail away. We saw plenty of whales, but the weather was such as to render it impossible to get them, so it was seemed advisable not to lower the boats. On arriving at Talcahana, the cable was hauled from the locker amidships and roved through the windlass, and when shackled to the anchor was ready to drop into the sea in order to hold the ship against the force of wind and water. When in a satisfactory distance from the land, the anchor was let go, when the vessel soon came to a standstill. Then the sails were furled, rigging coiled up, while the captain went on shore for letters and supplies as before. After the supplies were put on board, and the ship put in shape, the crew was given liberty on shore. The starboard watch being the first to go, the captain giving each one one dollar and ten cents each day. Each watch had three days on shore. I do not know how much the boat steerers got, but I suppose about five dollars each day. During our stay, ten of our crew deserted. The captain again offered a reward for their capture. We then hove up anchor and put to sea, and on our return a few days afterward, we found only one had been caught. The others were not so easily fooled, probably sure the ship would be back after them in a few days so I did not see them again as we squared away for the Galapagos Islands. The bark Peru of Nantucket being in port for water and provisions, we sailed in company. When off the islands we sighted whales, the boats were got ready for lowering, and on account of so many of the crew deserting, I was told to go in the third mate's boat, which I was more than pleased to do, as I was very anxious to see a whale close to. And fortune favoured our boat, as we soon drew alongside of one, I watched closely every move made by the boat steerer, as everything now depended upon him. As we drew closer to him, the boat steerer stood up and braced his knee in the bow chock, 
a place sawed out for that purpose, then placed two harpoons in a crotcheted stick fitted to hold them handily to reach, and as the boat got close to him, he darted first one and then the other, the iron striking the whale just forward of his hump and quickly sank to the sockets in the thick blubber. As the iron struck him, he raised his flukes high in the air and brought them down with a bang, which nearly swamped us, and it was lucky for us it didn't strike the boat, as it would have smashed it into pieces. He then started to run, and how we flew through the water, the water fairly boiled along the sides of the boat. I never rode so fast in my life before. He kept up his mad pace for a period of about ten minutes, when he finally slowed up. The third mate then exchanged places with the boat steerer and ordered us to pull in the line which draws the boat up to the whale. And great care must be taken not to get in the coils, as the whale is liable to take a fresh start at any time when woe to anyone who gets afoul of it. We hauled close up to him as he lay quite still, and the third mate proceeded to lance him, and soon had him spouting volumes of thick blood, when we drew away from him and let him have his flurry, which was of short duration, when he rolled over on his side, fin up, dead. We then drew up alongside of him, when the officer cut a hole in his flukes and made the boat fast to him, at the same time signalling the ship with a small flag carried for that purpose. When the ship bore down and made fast with him in what is called a fluke chain run through a hose pipe forward and round his flukes, it is then made fast to a bit and we have him secure. Our boat was then hoisted up and we were again on board. We then made preparations to cut him in. A stage for doing so is swung across the gangway in the waist, the heavy falls made fast around the main mast head, then the turns are put around the windlass and all is ready for cutting him in. The officers take long-handled spades and cut the thick blubber, the crew heaving at the windlass, and as they heave it, rolls the whale over and over so the officers can cut it off. The large strips as they are hove in are called blanket pieces. A boat steerer then is lowered into the whale by a rope under his arms to reeve head needle, so the head can be made fast and severed from the body, which usually sinks as soon as it is stripped to the blubber. The head of a sperm whale is hoisted on deck unless it is a very large one, in which case it is lashed alongside. As the best oil is found in the head, great care is exercised in saving it, but many times they sink and are lost. It is surprising to see how quick the sharks will gather around a dead whale, and whilst the boat steerer is overboard, the officers are kept busy trying to keep them away by cutting them with the long-handled spades, as they are very ravenous. After we had completed cutting the whale in, we began to cut him up into what is called horse pieces, which are then put through a mincing machine which scarps it similar to the pork in a pot of beans. The pots are then got ready for use by filling them about two-thirds full of the case oil from the head, supposed to be the brains of the whale, which is sometimes baled down to the head in buckets. Then the fires are lighted, and an officer being in charge of the boiling. After the head is all tried out, the horse pieces are put in, and when the oil is all out of them, they are screened off and put into a scrap napper to use for fuel, some always being kept to start the fires with. As the pots fill up, the oil is baled into a copper tank called the cooler, and as that fills up, it is then baled into casks prepared by the cooper. I eagerly watched all the process it went through, as it was a new business for me, and after it was all finished, I heard it made about 35 barrels of oil, so you see that with the 250th lay, it did me no good, yet it was a good start. 
We continued to cruise around for a period of 10 or 12 days, but as no more whales were seen, and in a calm the ship was drifting toward the shore, the captain ordered all the boats down to try to tow her away. We pulled hard all day until about four o'clock in the afternoon, when a light breeze sprung up, which gave us a lead off the shore when the boats were ordered back to the ship. After hoisting them up, we trimmed the sails, and away we went, clearing the land in safety. As the breeze held on, we headed for the Sandwich Islands, about 20 days sail away, and after a pleasant run, we ran in and anchored off the island of Mahi, one of the group. After fresh water and provisions were put on board, we were again given liberty of three days each. While there, I asked permission of the captain to go forward before the mast, as it is called, with the sailors, which he permitted me to do, as he had shipped another boy in my place. I then considered myself a sailor at once. I moved my chest from the cabin into the forecastle, and then had to stand watch, my trick, as it is called, at the wheel and masthead with the rest of the sailors. I was assigned to the port watch and the first mate's boat, and was to pull his stroke oar. While anchored there, many of us received letters from home, from relatives and friends, which to a sailor is a luxury, as it carries their minds back to their school days, and many little things are brought to mind and to think they are still remembered through thousands of miles from home, oft times brings tears of gratitude to their eyes, and many of them are read over and over again. While out of port, it is no uncommon thing to go below and find a sailor reading and pondering over a letter from a father, mother, or sweetheart, and they are eagerly looked for as soon as the captain, after going ashore, returns, and the glad look leaps into their eyes when he calls aloud their name. Again, on the other hand, there are those that do not receive any, and while others do, you can almost picture their feelings by watching them. Their heart seems to be held in a balance, expecting to hear their name called out, when it could jump for joy, and as there are none for them, they turn on their heel as though a heavy weight was hung to them. Before leaving Mahi, the captain shipped enough locals to complete his crew on account of those deserting. There were about 50 vessels at anchor in the harbour while we were there, mostly whalers in for water, provisions, and to give the sailors a run ashore, and as we met a great many of them, we had a good time. Our third mate, a Portuguese named Lewis, was taken sick, and the captain gave him his discharge and shipped another man in his place. After the crew had all had their liberty of three days each, we hove up anchor and started for Honolulu. Upon our arrival, the captain went on shore and sent a lighter out to us to take the 35 barrels of oil to send home to New Bedford. These so-called lighters are large boats built on purpose to take casks of oil from one vessel to another, or on shore, as many times vessels are in port, waiting for a cargo of oil, and it is very easy to lower into a lighter and take it to them, when they hoist it on board and away they go. After discharging, we started for Kodiak, on the coast of Kamchatka, in the northwest part of Alaska. We cruised in company with several other vessels about three weeks, all the time being in sight of Mount St. Elias. We saw whales several times, but owing to heavy weather, and they being to the windward, we were unable to get any. While cruising around, a dead right whale was sighted. We lowered for him and took him alongside, and while cutting him in, we found a harpoon in his blubber marked Montezuma. All whalers mark the name of their vessel on the harpoon, so if found, those finding it will know what vessel had owned it, as they would be considered the owners of the whale, should they come across him. And he proved quite a valuable find by stowing down about 150 barrels of oil and 1,500 pounds of bone without the trouble of chasing and killing him 
which might have proved disastrous to us, as he must have been a tough one, on account of being stuck already by the Montezuma's crew and then lost. No one knows but uh, what he had stove their boat to pieces, or killed or maimed some of them. But, be that as it may, we had him now, in casks, safe from harming anyone. After a few days of leisure, we again sighted whales. The boats were again lowered, and off we went, each boat working hard for the lead. Our boat was again high hook by fastening to a large cow whale, which ran so fast that we were soon out of sight of the ship, and as she continued to run, it was out of the question to think of hauling line on her, and we were getting further and further away. The mate deemed it advisable to cut the line and let her go, which he did. After watching her for a few moments, we turned around and started back in the direction the ship was in when we saw her last. I neglected to say that each of the officers carry a small compass in the boat, and if there are signs of being run out of sight of the ship, they note the direction she was in when last seen, and in a short time we could see her mastheads. We kept on. When, within three miles of her, we ran across two monster whales, we immediately gave chase and succeeded in making fast to one of them. After running a short distance, he slowed up, and we soon had our boat up close to him, when the mate began to lance him in good shape and soon had him spotting blood quite freely. When, just as the mate was nearly ready to back off, the boat steerer, through carelessness in not dipping his steering oar properly, and a large wave coming just at the same time, threw the boat on top of the whale and capsized us all on his back. And it is a miracle that any of us live to tell the tale, as he could have lashed us all in pieces in a few seconds, especially maddened as he was by being stuck with harpoons and lances. But, strange to say, he merely settled in the water, leaving us afloat. And owing to the water being so cool, and I had so many clothes on, I went under twice and was going down the third time, when one of the crew reached out an oar to me, which I eagerly grasped with all the strength I had left, and was pulled up on the bottom of the boat, where the others had clambered for safety. The others, seeing our predicament, started for us, and took us to the ship, and then put for the whale, as the mate had already given him his death wound before capsizing. They had no trouble in securing him. As soon as I got on board, I hurriedly made a change of clothing, and others following my example. It was nearly daylight when we got him made fast alongside, but he proved a good catch worthy of all the trouble we had, as he was very large and fat. We had just about finished cutting him in when a gale sprung up which lasted about six days, which made it hard work to boil down as the ship rolled so we could only fill the pots about half full. But we finished at last, and after cleaning up we found he had stowed down about 300 barrels of oil and 3,000 pounds of bone. Whales were in sight all the time during the gale, but it was no use to lower for them because we could not get them alongside, providing we got one or more, so no attempt was made. After the gale abated, we captured three large ones without anything occurring worthy of mention. After cutting them in, we cruised around about three weeks without seeing a spout of any kind. Then the captain concluded to run into Cook's Inlet, thinking he might find whales there. The inlet is very large and dotted with a large number of small islands. The tide runs very strong. We saw several whales and struck one but lost him. We then ran further in and anchored. The mate with his boat crew, I being one, went ashore on one of the islands. We went along a very narrow path in single file for a distance of nearly two miles when we arrived in sight of four or five huts or shanties which proved to be an Eskimo fishing village. The shanties were built of logs and shingled with bushes scattered all over the roof. The sides were about four feet high and the top went up to a peak like an ordinary house. 
the most noticeable feature being the inside. On entering one of them we found bare ground for floors and a fire built in the centre, with the smoke going out through the door and between the logs. Inside were also found several mounds built for the children, at least we thought so, as each of them contained a child from four to eight years of age, and to stand a short distance away you could hardly tell whether it was a child or a dog's head sticking out. They seemed to enjoy the situation as well as we did. We traded hard bread with them for salmon, which are found in large quantities and of unusual size, many of them weighing 20 or more pounds. After getting a quantity of them, we again returned to the vessel. While on the way back, the wind began to blow quite hard, and by the time we got on board, it was nearly a gale, which increased until it was a regular hurricane, the seas rolling mountains high. We tried to heave the anchor in, but as there was so much strain on it, it broke the windlass, which caused all the chain to run out of the locker, and all that held was where it was shackled around the mainmast. And it is a fact, yet many may doubt it, with our heaviest anchor down weighing about 2,500 pounds and 720 feet of chain attached to it, we drifted 70 miles to the leeward. And as she was drifting towards a lee shore, the captain ordered the royal and gallant yards and then the top gallant mast sent down, which was a very dangerous work at such a time. This was done on account of their holding so much wind aloft. The next order was to reef the topsails and set them. He then ordered the cable slipped, which meant the loss of the anchor and all the chain attached to it. But he was looking for the safety of the ship and crew and would willingly sacrifice a large number of them if found necessary to do so to ensure the safety of the vessel. By slipping the cable as we did was the means of saving our lives and the ship as well, as she barely escaped the breakers. Had she once got into them, it would have crushed her as quickly as you could have blown eggshell by stepping on it. After clearing the point, we had plenty of sea room and the captain ordered the vessel laid to, which was done, and she rode out the balance of the gale admirably, after which we had better weather. As it was now nearing the close of the season of 1858, the captain concluded to make for the Sandwich Isles. About four days before our arrival, we sighted a school of sperm whales. The boats were lowered, and each of the four succeeded in capturing one. We took them alongside and cut them in, when we again had plenty of work, as it is a case of little sleep and plenty of work while trying out whale. The crew generally get about six hours sleep in 24, until the blubber is all tried out. After cutting them in, we proceeded again on our course, and soon arrived at Mahi, and for fully 24 hours after anchoring, we were engaged in trying out, the four stowing down until 130 barrels. We then hauled alongside of the merchant ship Yorick of New Haven, Connecticut, and put all our oil and bone on board of her to send back to New Bedford. After completing the task of discharging our oil, the crew were again given liberty. The captain discharged the second and third mates and shipped others in their places. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner you can follow the link in the podcast description and there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help 
their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.